Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. What's your image of a successful professional? Articulate? Maybe over-articulate? Personable? but with a hidden potential for aggression, male, white, secular? Forgive me, I'm being borderline offensive with these stereotypes, but they do seem to conform to many workplace protocols. What about turning things upside down? Ask not what burdens employing different sorts of people might impose, ask what unforeseen contributions they might make. Take someone on the autism spectrum, for instance. There's no doubt that the condition can make office life tricky in some respects, but that's not the whole story. Here's Robin Stewart talking about some of the issues on the Naked Scientist podcast addressing autism. I had a lot of problems with knowing which emotions I was experiencing and then how to deal with them before they they built up. Um, So most people are able to regulate their emotions over a day and do things to level up the balance between anxiety and frustration, for example, whereas that's something that somebody on the autistic spectrum might find quite difficult and actually have to be very conscious to, to deal with that. How can we make the workplace more productive and more diverse? That's our question for this week. Joining me are Simon Baron-Cohen, Professor of Developmental Psychopathology at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of Trinity College. To say that he's an expert in autism would be putting it mildly, Sai was recently knighted for his services to research in this area. And Dr. Catherine Connolly of McMaster University in Canada, who has written widely about workplace practice and the experience of what she calls non-standard workers. Simon, I imagine you would argue there are potential strengths that high-functioning autistic individuals can bring to the workplace. Tell us more. Thanks, Ed. So... You know, your question is, what can autistic people bring to the workplace, as well as what can we do as employers? What can we do to to welcome them? And, you know, autistic people have many strengths. They obviously have a disability, otherwise they wouldn't need the diagnosis. And the disability is mostly around social relationships and communication. 
uh, and they have a strong need for predictability. They don't like unexpected change. But autistic people also have strengths in attention to detail. You know, they can spot things that other people miss. Uh, they often have a very good memory for factual information. They often have very narrow interests. Clinicians sometimes call this obsessions, but they go very deeply into certain topics. You know, but that can also be a plus. You know, someone who's not superficial, but actually really cares about the detail and doing it to a high standard and you know, doesn't want to be distracted until the job is done. These are all terrific strengths. And the question really is how can we kind of make the recruitment process more autism friendly and what can we provide when they get the job? Well, before we talk about recruitment and retention and support, what particular jobs do you think autistic people are good at? So, you know, you used the phrase high functioning before, and actually many of us in this sector no longer use that phrase, just because if you call one person high functioning, then the implication is someone else is low functioning, and that can carry a kind of value judgment. So clearly some autistic people have additional needs, like learning difficulties, but I would say that everyone who's autistic should be able to work. It's just about finding the right niche for that person. So if, you know, if they can do coding, that's great. They could work in the IT industry. If they prefer a more practical kind of job, they might be fixing bicycles or working in a bakery. We should think of every workplace as potentially where you could bring somebody in, whatever their disabilities, but with the right support. Okay, so Catherine, every workplace should be open, as Sai is saying, to autistic people. Now, you've used the term non-standard workers, and I know that's a, a pretty broad term, but just unpack that for us, particularly in terms of these sorts of issues and disabilities. Yes, so in uh, organizational behavior, that's my field in uh, the business school, a lot of our theories are kind of predicated on this assumption about who is the worker. Right. And so we make a lot of assumptions that this worker, he's male, he's uh, always worked at the same organization. He'll stay there for 40 years. He works 37.5 hours a week, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think this was ever exactly true, um, but it's definitely not true now. Right. And so it's important to consider a broader spectrum of employees, like who is in your actual workforce? and then find a way to manage your actual workforce in a way that meets their needs and yours. Can I just add to what you're saying, Catherine? Because we haven't yet mentioned the word neurodiversity, uh, but that's increasingly being talked about in terms of work. You know, that we know about other kinds of diversity at work, like gender diversity, ethnic diversity. Neurodiversity is just kind of the latest example of inclusion that we want to make sure that we're not inadvertently leaving out a whole group of people who could otherwise be in the workplace these days maybe the more important word is inclusion so neurodiversity essentially is that you know we all have different kinds of brains simplistically some people are left-handed some people are right-handed and that reflects the wiring of the brain but some people are more verbal some people are more spatial and autism might just be seen as one form of neurodiversity. You know, and, and one kind of brain, very importantly, isn't better or worse than another. They're just different. 
and each kind of brain can make their own unique contribution. And, you know, I think increasingly companies are realizing if you have diversity in your team, that's good for the company, good for the bottom line, as they say, because when you have diversity in terms of strengths, you get different perspectives, you're more likely to to result in innovation and new ways of thinking. So it's interesting what you're saying about the bottom line, because there's often this assumption that, well, if you're hiring people with disabilities, that's a that's a charitable thing. How how nice of you. That's good for your corporate social responsibility. And so some colleagues and I, we just finished up uh, a study. It's uh, published now in the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies. And this is using what we call a utility analysis methodology, where we look at the actual costs and value of hiring people with disabilities. And the thing is, we look at all the costs, not just accommodation costs, which turned out to be way lower than people assumed. And we look at all the value added in terms of being on time, productivity, helping each other. And we found a huge net savings from hiring the people with disabilities in our sample. And can you pinpoint where were the savings coming from? Yep, absolutely. So among the people who had disabilities, and there was a variety, these tended to be loyal workers who showed up, they were on time, and their performance was average to pretty good. And with the rest of the workforce, performance was over the, all over the map. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad. And there's a cost to having kind of staff turnover. It's a huge cost because not only do you have the cost of reposting the position and finding someone, but the new person has to get up to speed, their performance won't be. That disruption is huge, right? So at a very practical level, you want these loyal employees who will stick around, who don't want something new, different all the time. These are your good workers. It's very interesting that the way you're saying that you can measure productivity um, in this way. I mean, we could use the economic argument for why you should hire an autistic or a neurodiverse person. You know, and that's one way to kind of uh, maybe make some company directors think, okay, this isn't going to cost me anything. I, might, I may even make money. You know, like autistic people may spend less time chatting at lunchtime. They may just stay at their desk. You know, they may, they may want to not leave work until the job is done. So doing a lot of overtime unpaid. I think we have to be a little bit careful with the economic argument. I mean, it's one, it's one factor. It's one, it's one perspective. I think there is a kind of, um, not just a corporate, but a social responsibility. You know, and, and you could look at this through an economic lens too, that if you've got someone who's unemployed, you know, there's a cost somewhere else in the system on unemployment benefits, um, perhaps more frequent visits to the GP or to the psychiatric services, you know, because we know that employment gives you a sense of purpose, like a sense of, like, why should you get out of bed every day? It makes you feel valued. And so probably, you know, there's benefit, the mental health benefits, that, that also kind of feeds into the economic benefits. Yeah, I think they really go hand in hand. I mean, as a society, you have to decide, okay, what does participation in society mean, right? And so for better or for worse, having a job is very meaningful to people. And it gives structure to the week. It means that the weekend means something that they can just 
participate more fully. And so just as a society, if we want people to participate, employment is usually a piece of that. Catherine, can I can I ask, with in terms of the research you've done um, and the resistance that people expressed at the beginning, uh, it's not profitable or it's going to cause uh, uh, disharmony within the workplace, what sort of things did you prove were just sort of fake news, if I can put it like that? <laughs> um, well, I'll back up for a moment and just say, I think the biggest misconception that managers have is that they don't employ anybody with a disability right now. And I've had these bizarre conversations with um, companies where I've approached them because maybe they have a good reputation for hiring people with disabilities, treating them well and so on. And so I'll ask them just as a preliminary question, so how many people with disabilities do you have in your company? And they'll say, oh, Okay, I think, well, well, there's there's Steve. Okay, I think we might have three. And I'll say, but you've got a thousand employees. Are you sure? And they'll say, oh, no, we just don't. And <laughs> I think people have just a very stereotyped idea of what a disability is. Uh, it's just a wheelchair in their mind. And they're not thinking about the whole variety of different aspects of the human condition. And so... Because they have that stereotype, they can't even notice employees that they have with disabilities and that they're doing well, that these are good employees. And so once they have that in mind, then I think it starts to kind of disentangle some of their assumptions that they're making. Um, But until they know that, and then the other thing is sometimes they do have people with disabilities who work there who have not disclosed this, and usually for very good reasons. And they have made that careful calculus in their minds about, okay, this manager is not likely to be supportive, or my manager is, but HR sure is not. And so they have very carefully made a good decision for them about they are not going, they will self-accommodate. Yeah. Can I pick up on two points? I'm really interesting, you know, what you're saying. Um, So one is you've used the word accommodation, and it, it may be that not all of our listeners know what that means. In this country, we also use the word adjustments, like reasonable adjustments. I think in North America, they call them accommodations. But, you know, these things can be very cheap. You know, like if an autistic person, for example, gets very distracted by background noise, a lot of them have got kind of sensory hypersensitivity. They might just ask their line manager, is it okay if I wear headphones when I'm in in the office? It's a very cheap accommodation to their needs, but it makes the world a lot more comfortable for the autistic person. It's just a small adjustment. Some some autistic people find that fluorescent lighting in the office, the way it flickers, it's really painful for them. So you just change the light bulb. You know, these are small adjustments. But the other point I think that you made was, you know, some people may need a diagnosis or even have one, but they haven't told their employer because of fear of some kind of stigma. You know, and we just have to realize that, you know, we still have a long way to go, that there is stigma still attached to different forms of disability. Some examples of neurodiversity, I think, are, are now so accepted that, that it's fine, like dyslexia. You know, if you say I'm dyslexic, they say no big deal, you know, we can get you some software to do your spell checking for you or whatever you need. 
But autism, I think, probably still carries quite a lot of stigma. And unless you're in a workplace with the right culture, where they're very accepting, very supportive, you know, people might be worried. Maybe we need to talk a little bit about how do we move the needle in terms of destigmatizing some of these conditions? I mean, still on the topic of accommodation, I can tell you about a study we're doing right now about accommodations. And basically, we created this scenario study where managers were given an opportunity to look at different requests from employees. And the requests were all different. We changed this in the lab. And so there's the reason for accommodation. So was it because of a disability or because of a family situation? Had the person been there a long time or just a year or so? Were they really helpful to other people or did they mostly keep a little bit to themselves? And what level of performance do they have? And the thing is, in every scenario, an adjustment or an accommodation should have been given because they needed it. And it was a legitimate reason. And what we find is that managers are hugely influenced by how long somebody's been there, what level of performance they have, what level of social interaction they have with their, their colleagues. And it's terrible because it could be the reason why their performance is not at the super high level is because they don't have these adjustments or these accommodations. Yeah. And so... It's like a chicken and egg thing. Totally. Yeah. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. And my guests are Simon Baron-Cohen and Catherine Connolly. We're discussing workplace protocols and challenging workplace stereotypes. It was World Autism Awareness Week recently. So it seems appropriate to go back to that particular subject. Here's a clip from an interview with Holger Spurdin on the Naked Scientist website, in which he talks about some research he did into the visual responses of young children. Toddlers and preschool with ASD were exploring those videos quite differently, and those differences were also reflected inside the brain. And the first notable finding was that how information flowed in their brains was very different from one area to another in the brains of children with ASD compared to their typically developing peers. So, Sai, you did some work on the animated film sector, oh, nearly 20 years ago now, right, um, called Train Sporters. Tell us a little bit about it, and particularly, I think, the school environment and the workplace within the educational system. It was a kid's animation the title is actually The Transporters. Ah, oh, you see, you see, I don't read my lines carefully enough, Si. It's one little letter difference. But Transporters, it was like a kid's animation, a bit like Thomas the Tank Engine. But every character in the movie was a vehicle of one kind or another. And we designed it in that way because autistic kids often love to watch vehicles, trains, trams, tractors, cable cars, going down tracks. So they're nice and predictable. And they often avoid the world of people because people are the opposite, you know, very unpredictable. Um, you never know what a person is going to say or how they're going to act. So, you know, autistic people often kind of gravitate towards a more predictable world. But what we did was we put human faces onto the front of these vehicle characters, all in animation. So that even whilst the autistic person was looking at the trains or the trams, they were also looking at faces and learning about emotions and seeing how people's faces react when something happens. So in a sense, what we were doing was we were ensuring that they weren't missing out 
on social experience, social opportunities. And this was designed for like preschool kids. And we did a randomized control trial where we showed that kids, autistic kids, who watched these animations just for 15 minutes a day over a one month period, their ability to recognize emotions increased. So just like any, any skill, if you get the opportunity to practice it in a way that is comfortable, uh, you improve. And Catherine, how might that apply to the wider workplace? I like what you're saying about this idea of kind of learning the skills and then applying them, and then that helps you to do better at it, so then you get more opportunities. Because you see this with young people entering the workforce. And so sometimes their parents have really tried to protect them, kind of shield them, maybe make them focus on school. And so they may not have a part-time job. They might not have a lot of extracurriculars. When they're trying to get their first job, it's a little harder for them. And so maybe, okay, they won't take that job. They'll just focus on school. And then that kind of carries on until they're trying to enter the workforce without having had an opportunity to develop a lot of these extra skills that people will pick up kind of on the side as they go. And then when they reach the workforce, all their training happens immediately, right away, first week, first two weeks, and they have to learn everything about every situation that might ever happen. And it's overwhelming. Yeah, and now throw into the mix that the person is autistic, where they don't like change. And suddenly the first two weeks is massive change. You know, a lot of autistic people will experience a kind of sensory overload. They describe things like meltdowns, you know, or shutdowns where they just, they become paralyzed. And, you know, and everyone's thinking, is this person capable of, of the job? But actually, it's just that, you know, they just need the information to be kind of delivered more slowly, maybe one piece at a time, so that they can process it and show their true abilities. So is what's required legislative? Does it require a change in the law or is it a cultural change, a shift that we need? Catherine, I see you shaking your head to both of those. So what do we need? (laughs) So I I would say no to both just because we've had legislation. And we haven't seen too much of a shift. I mean, for any age group, you look at the unemployment rate, if you double it, that's usually the rate for people with disabilities. Um, And that's despite legislation. So I, I don't think it's legislation is the ticket. And then with the culture, culture is just a reflection of what people already think. And so you can't change the collective view on things necessarily without having individuals change. So I think we need individual managers, individual leaders to say this is a priority to work with community organizations that have specialized expertise in how to bridge this a little bit better. And if they're committed to it, they will make it happen and see it through. And then without that commitment, I think nothing changes. But Catherine, not that I want to disagree with anything you've said. Of course not. You know, I agree with everything. But Ed and I have got kids who, when they were teenagers, you know, they were required to do one week of work experience. You know, every kid in the class had to do it. You know, and it was to varying degrees successful or unsuccessful. And for many kids, it was just ticking that box that they'd done it. And that was it. But imagine, you know, if we were saying to schools, you know, high school, 
but it should be, I don't know, more frequent so that kids can really take it seriously. They can become more comfortable in the in the world of work. You know, it wasn't that long ago when if you think back 100 or 200 years ago, kids were supposed to work at, you know, at five years old. And if you go to some parts of the world, kids leave school after primary school and they're working in the street markets at, by the age of 10 or 11. So maybe we're underestimating children's ability to join the world of work, We're giving them a kind of, I don't know, more of an immersion in, into work right through the teenage years, building their self-confidence and also making sure there's plenty of support for the kids with extra needs. I think what's necessary is a variety of approaches. Like instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, I don't think legislation alone would fix it. I don't think volunteer programs alone would fix it. Community organizations alone are not going to fix it. But I think anyone interested in trying to improve their local situation could take a small measure and then see how that goes. And if it's successful, others will see that and learn from them rather than from academics like me. Well, it does seem that we are evaluating the workplace at the moment in this COVID time. We're all thinking about we're not going to go back to work in the same way. And the Wolf Institute did a study recently about issues of perception of diversity in the workplace. And as Simon said at the beginning, the fact that you're working with people means that you're getting used to who they are. So I'm just wondering whether there is now this opportunity to reassess the workplace because people are open to it. An added or a supplementary question, which is about the online working. Does that provide an opportunity or does it make it more difficult for neurodiversity? I don't think I know the answer to this. You know, I've been asked a few times whether since the pandemic, have things got easier for autistic people because instead of having to be in the office with all the hustle and bustle, you know, things can be a bit more under their control where they can log into a website, they can turn off their video when it's too much. You know, I just don't know. I think we probably need some research to find out whether these kind of remote ways of working do have any benefits for people with different kinds of disabilities. It would be wrong for an academic to pronounce on these things without evidence and probably it would be much better to go direct to the autism community to ask them what, what they would like, what they experience. So I think one thing that we could say is that the possibilities have opened up a lot more. And going back just to 2019 feels like a long time ago, but it's not that long ago. Lots of people were asking to work from home and routinely being told, no way is that ever going to be possible for you. And then suddenly, it was. And so people have figured out different ways of doing things. And I think it happened in a way that people are just starting to rethink, okay, could we do this? Okay, maybe we could. And so if people are now able to ask for adjustments in how they do their work, they might be more likely to get it. And then once those are successful, it just opens up more possibilities for others. And presumably, Catherine, it improves retention rates within the workplace. Yes, this is one of the perks that people have been asking for, for ages. I mean, partly for the commute, right? And so depending on your disability, the commute can be really difficult. And so it can be nice to at least a few days per week have to be able to skip the commute and just focus just on your work from home. So if that's 
something that your company offers and the others don't, then that's a huge competitive advantage for your company. I have to say that although I miss being in my office and bumping into my colleagues, like in the corridor, having those kind of informal conversations and, you know, catch-ups, you know, I think quality of life, like today, I've been working hard, but I also got one hour in the garden. You know, so that, was, that was fantastic. You can see some definite benefits to this kind of remote way of working. And that's if, if of course, Sai, you have the space to do that. And we're fortunate in Cambridge, tending to have a bit more space, but there are many people whose domestic arrangements don't allow that to happen. So there's a sort of desperation to actually get out of that domestic sphere in, into the workplace. Yeah, so I think Catherine's phrase about there isn't a, a one-size-fits-all is a, a good guiding principle here. But, you know, maybe what we have learned from the pandemic is that we can think differently about work. You know, we can be a, a lot more sort of flexible in how we define, you know, what working life means. And I guess it's for people like Catherine to, you know, measure the productivity measure the kind of benefits and the costs. And I think, Catherine, we're going to come back to you on that in a few months' time and see whether this really has been a moment of change. That's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for listening, and I'd like to thank our guests, Simon Baron-Cohen and Catherine Connolly. Let's be hearing from you at Naked Reflections. You can contact us at the Wolf Institute by email or on Facebook or Twitter. Let us know what you think of the show. We've covered a wide range of subjects which you can find by delving into our back catalogue. And it's worth checking out our new podcast, The A to Z of the Holy Land, from Arab to Zion. All you need to know about the Holy Land in bite-sized chunks. You can also find the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientist.com slash reflections or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.